0: This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you.
0: Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, the war in Ukraine is almost six months old. We have seen some terrible things and the consequences of that war or that invasion, of that conflict, are being felt everywhere. Nowhere more, of course, than by the people of Ukraine and indeed those who are sent to fight for Vladimir Putin this week, a lot of the attention has focused on Europe's largest nuclear facility. It's in a place called Zaporizhia, which is run by Ukrainians, but the Russians have occupied it, and there has been some exchanges of fire in the area of the nuclear plants. That is a matter of great concern, but there are also some signs that things might change. The Turkish President Erdogan, Turkey is a member of NATO, has condemned the invasion of Ukraine, but has refused to join NATO partners in sanctioning Russia. He is acting as something of a peace broker and managed to broker a deal that allowed the port of Odessa to be used to export grain badly needed by the world, and to encourage the Russians, as they did, to remove their blockade of Odessa. So things are happening, and in Erdogan's view, this conflict will end at the negotiating table, and the UN Secretary-General Gutiérrez was also in Kiev this week. We're joined now to discuss this war, where it's going, and where it has been by Senator Tom Clonan. Tom was an officer in the Irish Army. He was deployed in the Lebanon as part of a UN force in 1996. He witnessed the horrors of war in an operation mounted by the Israelis called Operation Grapes of Wrath, in which there was a massacre of refugees in Cana. This was a horror that many people will recall, and a former friend, uh, as the late Robert Fisk, also reported on. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. I want to ask you first about this nuclear facility. It is the, the biggest in Europe. It's in a very strange circumstance, if you like, with Ukrainians operating it, because it's in Ukraine, I believe, but the Russians are also there and in command, as it were. Yeah, so the nuclear plant at Zaporizhia
2: is actually located south of the city of Zaporizhia in a, in a place called uh, Enarhodar, and it is across the river Dnieper from Zaporizhia, and it's in the area that is occupied by Russian forces. And it, it was one of the uh, first pieces of critical infrastructure that they seized in March, uh, after their February 24th invasion. So the Russians prioritized the seizure of this. It's it's one of the 10th largest nuclear power plants in the world. It's the biggest, as you said, in Europe. And it sits next to a massive reservoir uh, called the Kakovka Reservoir, uh, and, and along the banks of the Dnieper River, uh, which, which flows into the into the Black Sea. So it's the, the the Russians seized it initially and cut off all power to the surrounding cities and towns, and they have actually in recent weeks, it's been confirmed that personnel from the Russian kind of uh, atomic energy agency Ross Atom have been uh, identified as as being present in the plant, and they have been redirecting some of the power back towards the the, the Russian national grid. So it's it's part it was originally part of their campaign of you know um trying to surround cities lay siege to them uh, cut off the water sewage uh, power gas in order to target civilians I- I- to accelerate the 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 collapse of the defense of cities like mariupol uh and and other cities in and around that area Kherson included so the, the the pinch point now is that um the ukrainians are counterattacking it's south of Zaporizhia towards Kherson, the Russians' forces are reported to be evacuating their troops back across the Dnieper, following the uh, the destruction of a number of major bridges, uh, which which affects their resupply and reinforcement. So it's it's a very sensitive uh, touch point at the moment. The local Russian commander, uh, Vladimir Rogov. Said during the week or claimed during the week that the Ukrainians had been using uh, US manufactured M777 howitzers to fire at the Nikopol district, which is the metropolitan area around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, claiming that this placed um, the, the power plant in imminent danger yes. of, of, of destruction or, or damage.
0: And how dangerous is this? what appears to our untutored eyes, a game of chicken. (laughs) It's a pretty serious danger, although I understand from experts that comparisons with Chernobyl are completely wrong. Chernobyl was a flawed plant anyway. This is not flawed in that way, and this isn't a danger. Nevertheless, people, when they hear about fire being exchanged around this plant, they are naturally fearful.
2: Yeah, th- this actually bit was was high on the news agenda back in March. I, I don't know if you recall when the Russians actually took the plant, yes. and uh, they so that was a very dangerous situation where Russian forces actually moved into the vicinity of the the nuclear power plant itself. They sent in ground troops uh, and armored vehicles and tanks, and they're when they're used in that mode in direct support of infantry, it's called the direct fire mode. So they were firing um, the main armament on tanks. That's uh, high-explosive anti-tank shells and high-explosive anti-personnel shells um, in in the direct fire mode at the buildings of the nuclear power plant itself in order to take it and, and to root out any Ukrainian resistance. And that was a very, very dangerous moment because you know, you're, you're looking at the main armament of tanks that have a range of anything up to five, six, six thousand 6,000 metres being fired point blank at a couple of hundred metres distance from all sorts of buildings and outhouses. And with the best will of uh, in the world, I, I don't know that your average Russian tank commander could tell the difference between a dry storage facility, uh, an administration block, or some part of the critical infrastructure. Yes. Of, of So that was a kind of a very free-flowing... Um, kinetic, dynamic uh, moments. So the Russians took the plant and, there, and, and the Ukrainian staff have been persuaded, I imagine, more or less at gunpoint to continue operating and maintaining the plant safely. So the two major risks are, the, the catastrophic one would be um, the actual, you know, explosion within one of the reactors, which is what happened in, in Chernobyl. And um, But the more likely outcome of the type of indirect fire that is, uh, you know, the exchange of artillery, long-range artillery between the Russians and the Ukrainians would be damage um, to some of the processing uh, buildings, which could lead to nuclear contamination. Some some experts are saying that uh, it's not necessarily analogous with Chernobyl, that it would be more likely to be analogous with what happened at Fukushima in Japan in 2011 I think it was where the contamination was 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 very very serious and um, but was more localized than would have been the european experience with chernobyl back in the in the 80s
0: now the turkish president erdogan said something that i suppose is true of all wars he said i'm convinced this conflict will end around a negotiating table um, That's a a sort of a truism, I suppose. We're nowhere near that, are we, Tom, or are we? Erdogan, of course, is ideally placed in some ways. They're dependent on Russia, the Turks, for tourism and oil. At the same time, they have condemned the invasion and they have supported Ukraine with some minor armaments. So if there were to be talks, they would be possible brokers. However, there's serious fighting going on. And and this week, it appears that the Crimea, which Russia took in 2014, was hit by Ukraine. And they are receiving new weapons from the Americans, Brits, all the time, aren't they? Yes. And you can be sure that NATO and
2: the European Union uh, have been accelerating their efforts to reinforce and resupply uh, the Ukrainian military. It's a very interesting moment. I I would describe the conflict as having had three phases thus far. The first phase started on 24th of uh, February with, you know, a really ambitious but really reckless plan on the part of the Russians, you know, advancing on Kiev, advancing into the east and south from from Russia proper and from uh, the Crimean Peninsula, advancing into... Ukraine on multiple axes of, of advance with multiple avenues of approach uh, and a, a spectacular failure they were ho- they, did, they 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 the Russians expected rather putin expected that Zelensky would flee and that they would that the yeah. regime would collapse and that they would control all of ukraine that didn't happen so phase 2 began in march where it took them 12 weeks right up until july to take all of the luhansk oblast with the collapse of several donetsk and Lishihansk, and the destruction of those cities. So we're now into phase three on the Russian part, which is to, you know, take all of Donetsk. But what they haven't, I suppose, I suppose, I um, suppose, Factored into this phase three plan is is the Russian, sorry, is the Ukrainian counterattack which is taking place, the counteroffensive, and that consists of a number of um, elements. There's a, a major counteroffensive up around Kharkiv, pushing Russian forces back towards the Russian border and down around Kherson, where where this nuclear power plant is. So Putin is under pressure. There's there's a lot of um, propaganda at the moment and the so but if if you look at the kind of the nuts and bolts of it you, know, you can make sense of what's happening Putin has thrown his 200,000 troops at the total annexation of of Donbas that's both Donetsk and Luhansk with that force militarily the object the 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 options that are open to him are quite limited he's he's in a desperate battle of attrition to take all of the Donetsk um, before the winter sets in, but he's been frustrated in that by a massive Ukrainian counteroffensive. So the only option that would be open to Putin now, you know, as a really dramatic game changer, would be to declare formally a war on Ukraine and introduce global conscription throughout the Russian Federation and its republics, and you know, throw the full weight of the Russian military at it. I I don't know if 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 the if he would have the support. Um, of of those who empower him for that, yes. although the do, the Duma in Russia last week increased the military service age in Russia from forty. Uh, waiting you hear this now, mean From forty to sixty-five. <laughs> wow! Now, I don't mean to make light of something, but it shows no, no. that they're they're starting to run out of um, mercenaries, and uh, the 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 regular units that they have put into this uh, fighter are, are severely depleted. The visit by Erdogan during the week was really fascinating. Um, this was where he met Zelensky in, in Lviv with uh, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary-General of the United Nations. Um, accompanying Erdogan on that visit was a guy called uh, uh, Heluk Baraktar, and he's the CEO of the, the Turkish Bayraktar drone company. And they have been supplying drones to the Ukrainian military. He was photographed... Um, with President Zelensky, and these drones are believed to have played a role in some of the deep penetrating attacks in the Crimean Peninsula uh, in the last week, which targeted Russian airbase and uh, ammunition depots. So that, that's sending a very very clear message to you know Vladimir Putin that you know the the, the support of arms to 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 transform this. Um, conflict from a pitched battle artillery exchange into a more, a more deep conflict is there. And interestingly, um, this guy, Haluk Bayraktar, echoed uh, Sabina Higgins's sentiments in that he said it's time that this war came to an end and that all sides get together in the interests of peace and, and a just resolution and that the, the fighting has to stop. So, you know, I, I Erdogan's role in all of this as an interlocutor between Putin and the United Nations has been very, very interesting. There's a lot of tension has been between Turkey and Russia. And, you know, Erdogan is leveraging this within NATO. Uh, Turkey is is a member of NATO and it has actually the largest standing army within NATO. But uh, Erdogan has protested against um, the joining of NATO by uh, Finland and Sweden on yes. the basis that... NATO recognizes the the Kurdish Workers Party the, uh, which Turkey feels is you know designates as a terrorist organization so he's he's leveraging his role as interlocutor between Putin and the UN and NATO and so on with his own uh, domestic and and border agenda so he did manage to broker that grain deal and one would hope um that people around Putin in the Kremlin will begin to see sense that this war Can only, you know, there's going to be no transformation here for Russia. They're going to gain ground, I I assume, but at great cost. Uh, The only other alternative for, for them is is escalation, which will be catastrophic for everybody, for Russia, for Ukraine, and for for Europe.
0: Let me ask you about what appears to me to be a key question, which is President Zelensky's disposition. As to what will he settle for? Will he allow Russia? to keep any of the ground it gained? Will he, as the strike on Crimea suggests, and some other moves they've made in eastern Ukraine, will he want back what the Russians took in 2014, for example? Could Zelensky become a problem for those who are seeking an end to this conflict, particularly on the NATO side.
2: I think Zelensky thus far has shown himself to be uh, pragmatic. Um, yes, and like he survived that initial attempt to decapitate the regime in in February. There were special Russian special forces in Kiev, in the capital city, and near yes. the buildings in which in which he and his his entourage were located, and their orders were to either capture or kill him. And his fa- and his family is yes. his partner. I mean, they, it was an all-out attempt to to kill him. And part of the reason for th- this was a major miscalculation on the part of Putin. There there are three major intelligence failures on Putin's part, which will I think go some way to answering your question about what will Zelensky settle for or what what what's his ultimate aim. This week, Zelensky said that the war started in. Crimea in 2014, and he said this conflict will end in Crimea. But again, this is you know a a time of propaganda and people, you know, uh, hoping to speak from a position of of strength. Putin and those around him um, have mobilized Russian nationalism since since the, the chaos of the 90s, the Yeltsin years, to sort of restore public faith in the Russian Federation and confidence. There's this idea that Russia has regained what they call aptitude as an yes. international power broker. The United the NATO's hurried withdrawal this time last year from Afghanistan bolstered um, the status of Putin and Sergei Lavrov in Central Asia um, with the Americans and NATO gone from Afghanistan. It's China and Russia who are the power brokers in Central Asia. And similarly, he benefited from NATO and the US and their allies' failures and missteps in, in the Middle East. So, Centred, so, so it seems to be the case that Putin has now begun to believe this ultra nationalist sort of narrative, and they regard Donbas um, as Novorossiya or a part of Russia itself. And Putin has repeatedly said that Ukraine is an artificial entity that it doesn't yes. actually exist, and he may have believed in that initial strike back in the February the twenty fourth that the his so called the, the, the so called artificiality. And fragility that he assigned to Ukraine would mean that it would collapse in front and be russified very easily. But that's not what happened. So that was his first intelligence failure. He failed to anticipate the coherence of Ukraine as a, for all its failings, a a kind of a Western-style popular democracy, and their capacity and willingness to fight for Ukraine. That was his first intelligence failing. The second one was, I suppose, with, with NATO's collapse this time last year in Kabul, chased out of the country, as Putin would see it, by men with beards and Kalashnikovs. He failed to anticipate the coherence of NATO's um, response. And within days of the uh, Russian invasion, NATO set up uh, a command and control center to begin the supply and transport and forward deployment of weapons and ammunition and other stores uh, to assist the Ukrainian defense. And the third uh, intelligence failing was the, uh, you know, I suppose post-Brexit, Putin felt that, um, you know, the European Union wouldn't be yes. coherent in its response. So here we are. Um, it, we're, now appro- we're now approaching six months, six months of war aiming, and, and he hasn't, you know, the only thing he can really say is, well, I, I've secured a bit of a land corridor down to the Crimean Peninsula, uh, and I have all of Luhansk, but we're still fighting in in Donetsk. It, it doesn't give him the clear and unambiguous victory that he needs.
0: Can we just ask you, in in passing, Tom, almost, about the British? I mean, we all, at least I speak for myself, find them almost laughable in their attitude to Brexit and to the rest of the world and, indeed, to their leadership battle that's taking place at the moment. Do they deserve the credit? And uh, giving Boris Johnson credit is hardly in vogue, for initially being strong-minded, supplying troops very early on to Zelensky and support, and that the division between the EU and the UK would have been another sign for not just the Russians, but probably the Chinese as well, that the West is divided. I think it's
2: best to look at Britain's response through the lens of its membership of NATO, Yes. and Britain has been for decades the the linchpin in what's called the transatlantic relationship. That relationship between Washington and Europe, and uh, it, it is a great tragedy that Britain, <laughs> despite everything they've done yes. to us, it's a great tragedy that they yeah. that they left the European Union and Brexit was has has weakened the union, has undermined it. But uh, they they certainly stepped up to the plate from from a military perspective in. Recognizing immediately, the only response to Putin's show of force was to respond equally and co- like. Yes. This, the, like if this was if this was a normal situation, those any one of those three intelligence failings on Putin's part, uh, and he is a former intelligence officer, he, any one of them on their own would have been enough to see his um, being removed or replaced. All three together, but we're not dealing with a normal situation. So politically, he is—he's an autocrat. He styles himself as you know the strongman of Russia, president for life, and so on. So you're you're dealing with that. He's—I don't know that he's—he's he's listening to any sensible advice. He keeps sacking his subordinates, and yes. even this week, the the commander of the Black Sea Fleet, um, Igor Osipov, has been replaced by Viktor Sokolov in in the wake of those. Uh, attacks in in the Crimean peninsula. So he's not somebody who listens to his advice. From a military perspective, if you if you look at this, like he 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 committed 200,000 troops more, more or less to this special operation in Donbas. 6 months in, having lost it's estimated 15,000 troops and many multiples of that seriously injured. You know, that operation you you would say is coming to a close. It's it's right. reached its limit of exploitation. But unfortunately, this is a man who possesses nuclear weapons. Yes. In in a war of attrition in terms of who can withstand the most, the economies of the European Union are ten times the size of the the, the Russian Federation. I mean, so if you look at it logically through the calculus of, you know, uh, economic wherewithal and military wherewithal, this is a war that should be drawing to a close. But we're not dealing with a normal person in Putin, and he is a person who possesses nuclear weapons. And from the very outset, back in February, he said twice in the last week of February, on the 22nd, I think it was, and on the 28th of February, he said that if, if the West tried to thwart his Ambitions for for Russia in Ukraine that he would you know do something that hasn't been seen before, and then he put his nuclear forces on high alert. So that's something, unfortunately, that has to be uh, incorporated into our understanding of what yes. might happen next. And I suppose the the threat of nuclear contamination at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant is emblematic of that. Um, but the Russians have said this before: might be tempted to use a small tactical nuclear weapon at a target like uh, Kramatorsk. Uh, or Slavyansk; uh, these would be highly symbolic targets for the Russians, and uh, they're heavily fortified by the Ukrainians. They're vital military hubs and part of their their counteroffensive, the overall concept of operation. So one would hope he doesn't do he, he doesn't do that.
0: But at which it, point the Americans, I assume, are in. Well, and, uh, and NATO, like, if if they couldn't stand idly by, could they?
2: If, what if, if, I think, in in all likelihood, Eamon, if if the Russians were to were to fire a, attack a small tactical, a so called small tactical nuclear weapon, which to put it in context, they have weapons that are about one tenth the size of the weapons uh, that were used in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So they would be, yes. uh, you know, the, the Russians might cons- and the Russians have incorporated them into their sort of strategic doctrine. But if they were to do that, the NATO and the West, there would be an immediate, massive, conventional retaliation. Right. A massive, conventional retaliation that would destroy military targets um, and strategic infrastructure all over Russia. Right. Now, and that, and that, and you know, we don't even want to think about what would happen next. But to answer your question, what would Zelensky accept? The Russians have been in Donbass since 2014. And yes. They've they've been in in you know they obviously they annexed Crimea by force majeure they're there to get them out of there I I know that there is some success with the counter offensive but Zelensky would have to mobilize the four hundred thousand men mostly men with uh, combat experience since twenty fourteen to do a massive push but to get them out completely of Ukrainian territory would consist of a war of annihilation and I mean I, I would hope that. The posturing at the moment is so that Zelensky, quite rightly, can negotiate with Putin from a position of strength, because it's the only thing that Putin understands or responds
0: to. A final question about the prospect, Tom, of this conflict running on into winter. Well,
2: the old saying, will it all be over by Christmas? (laughs) I, uh, you know, I really, I I think you will, at, at Christmas, we will still have Russian troops in Ukraine. Um, I think the winter will. If if we're still in this, um, I, I I can't see the Ukrainians. They, they may they may retake Kherson. They may retake some high profile towns, but I can't see them dramatically turning the. The, the Russians out of of the areas that they no. now occupy. And so I think the, it'll, you know as the winter sets in, I think it'll settle down into a into a, a a horrible and brutal war of attrition between both sides.
0: Yeah, and a city like Mariupol, which we saw the first one to be raised to the ground and turned into dust. Really, I mean crimes like that are not going to be easily forgotten. And also, I saw a, a figure of seven hundred and fifty billion dollars being the cost of reconstruction. So we're into something that we really haven't seen before.
2: Yeah I, I mean I think the best defense eventually Russia will have to either as I say declare war and mobilize the entire Russian population and you know then all bets are off or into a, a major conflict. But eventually you know aside from that scenario which is I, I think is theoretically possible but hopefully rather unlikely, the only the only other thing they can do, I mean, they, they have more or less reached the limit of their exploitation. It, the, the, the proof is in where they are on the ground. On the twenty fourth of August, which is actually Ukraine's um, Independence Day, they will have the Russians will have been fighting for six months. Yes, that ain't the the swift, unambiguous military yes. victory that Putin had hoped for. So, if if there was any, if there were any sensible voices in the in the Kremlin. For for the sake of the Russian people and for the the people of Ukraine, people will be saying enough is enough now. You know, we need to perhaps consolidate the gains that they they have made. Um, And and Zelensky in any negotiation with the Russians, all 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 such negotiations are about compromise. um, Might might have to settle on some sort some sort uh, some sort of a a compromise situation. And far be it for me to say that they were invaded. Uh, it was an act of unprovoked aggression. But hopefully membership of the European Union uh, and the economic benefits that that will bring to the region and which will showcase Ukraine as a popular democracy, that will be the best, um, I suppose, counterpoint to Vladimir Putin as an autocrat and as a dictator. Eventually the Russian people hopefully will, 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 you know, get a better leadership system than that in the future. And, and Putin isn't going to be around forever.
0: Okay, uh, Senator, Tom Clonan, thank you very much indeed. Tom, of course, was elected a senator for Trinity College and he is in the Senate now. We're grateful to Tom, grateful to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Planning for your next trip?